Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this morning we'll be reflecting on the legacy of MLK, the recent synagogue hostage situation in Texas, and the state of Christian-Jewish relations in our country. And I'm eager to begin our thoughtful discussion with my two guests, both esteemed scholars of religion and thought leaders on the impact and lessons we can draw from our religious texts, particularly Christianity and Judaism. Joining me are Professor Cheryl Townsend-Jilks, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of African American Studies and Sociology and Director of the African American Studies Program at Colby College. Professor Jilks is an ordained Baptist minister and serves as an assistant pastor for special projects at the Union Baptist Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's a sociologist whose specialties focus on African American women, religion, social change, and the legacy of W.E.B. Du Bois and her research, teaching, and writing have specifically focused on the role of African-American women in generating social change and on the diverse roles of black Christian women in the 20th century. Professor Jokes, welcome. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for this opportunity to speak with you and to speak with a very much admired uh, colleague, biblical scholar. Yes. And I'll let you introduce her. I'll be quiet. <laughs> and our, thank you. Thank you for that, for, for teeing up that introduction. Um, our other guest is Professor Professor A.J. Levine, the, the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. I don't know how you fit that all on your business card. That's really incredible. Um, among many honors, uh, in spring 2019, Professor Levine was the first Jew to teach New Testament at Rome's Pontifical Biblical Institute. She's lectured on the Bible, Christian-Jewish relations, and religion, gender, and sexuality across the globe. And if lectures aren't really your thing, she's also got a bunch of children's books out that are about counting sheep, so you can check those out too. Well, welcome to you, Professor Levine. It's a pleasure to be with you. And and this is like this mutual admiration society. I've been learning from Professor Jokes. I don't want to say, you know, multiple decades, but in fact, it has been. Um, <laughs> the scholarship has been around for a while and it is necessary for people to read. Wonderful. Right? What, wonderful. And, you've, and, and you've I met, say the same for yours. <laughs> and you've met before, but but maybe not had a chance to talk in depth as we're about to do on this conversation. Is that right? So thank you for setting that up. Great, yes. great. And thank you for, for Professor Jokes for, for recommending you to, to join us here. She was very excited about it. So I'm, I'm glad we can make this happen. Um, Professor Jokes, I, I want to just start with you. Uh, this past Monday, of course, we commemorated MLK's birthday. But the cruel irony, uh, of course, is that this year in particular, we as a country seem to be, uh, as I heard um, Bishop Barber say it, celebrating while not legislating. And that is posting a lot of pictures and quotes from the man while the wheels of political power are stuck in a debate around issues that MLK really gave his life to move forward. So I wanted to hear from you. What have you been reflecting on during MLK's birthday? Well, I always find the MLK birthday, the birthday of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to be an opportunity 
to reflect on his work, the value of his work, the high value of his work that we often miss because of course, sound bites give us little pieces of speeches. They make for wonderful visuals and mm -hmm. for wonderful auditions. But Dr. King wrote a lot. He had a degree in sociology, and I feel very, you know, um, I feel a kinship just because of the sociology degree. Most people do not realize that on April 3rd, 1968, there were two Black men in America with PhDs in systematic theology. Mm. On April 5th, 1968, there was only one. Mm. This is how important, just simply in terms of his achievement of the PhD by age 26 and the writings and the teaching that he did as part of the movement. When he went to Montgomery, he didn't go there with the idea that I'm going to pastor Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and become a leader of the civil rights movement. He was going to do what many highly educated ministers, African-American ministers did. They pastored a church, um, usually briefly, and then went straight into academia, eventually becoming um, presidents, particularly of what we nowadays say as HBCUs, but at that time people would say the Negro colleges. I'm, I'm imitating a professor of mine when I was in graduate school who informed me that once I finished my master's paper, I would publish it and you will go south and teach in the Negro colleges. That, it, 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 and, and, and the thing is, I realize now that he meant that he meant he didn't mean that as a microaggression of any kind. He was like saying, you have a mission. But so so that's part of what fascinates me about Dr. King. And the other thing is that his writings, and I had the opportunity at my college, Colby, uh, we did a book seminar where we would have six meetings around a book that I that I chose that in a residence hall. And I chose Testament of Hope the writings of the essential writings of Dr. Martin Luther King edited by a, an historian, a um, church historian by the name of James Melvin Washington. I, um, and one of the conclusions the students came to at the end of that, that, that semester was what Dr. King wrote in this book, and it had speeches, sermons, as well as book excerpts, including his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? They said what he said then still applies now, mm. that they were shocked that the social problems he identified in the book, and it wasn't just the segregation, it wasn't just the Jim Crow, but the, the, the social problems, the, in, the general inequality of the nation, he talked about that. And that was also a way of um, understanding the value of Dr. King. And so, what is frightening is that it's still relevant. You wrote in your op-ed this week at the Religion News Service, our memory of King's so-called dream speech has been reduced to sanitized sound bites. So how do you feel Christians broadly in the U.S. are doing in terms of manifesting MLK's prophetic vision? <laughs> Christians broadly? Well, what is it? Um, Dr. King at one point bar borrowing from the work of 
um, Liston Pope, who was borrowing, I think, from Billy Graham, made the point that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Mm -hmm. Now, when Dr. King said that, he was talking about racial segregation. But Sunday mornings, unless you have a job that does not give you enough leverage to have Sunday off, you think mm -hmm. of all of the essential workers mm -hmm. that we have learned about during COVID who don't have any choice. They have to work the night shifts. They have to work on Sundays. They have to work on holidays. Other than that, Sunday morning is the most discretionary time in America. Mm -hmm. And what people are doing at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, someone once asked me, well, what if I'm getting my New York Times and a bagel uh, at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? And I said, that says something about your networks and who you are, your status. Mm -hmm. It is That's not true just racial segregation, it is also class segregation, it is geographic segregation. Uh, when you think of, and, and don't, don't get me wrong, I am a person of faith. I love me some faith stuff, but I also recognize the way in which that 11 o'clock Sunday morning hour tells you where people are in the social structure, if they're doing peewee football, if they're doing soccer, if they, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning that tells us about the status and class structure of our society. And we need to recognize that. All of that being said, one of the things that the last few years has revealed and made more visible are the stress lines that have existed throughout American history about around religion and race. Um, what we, we say uh, when we talk about Methodists, we now nowadays we say United Methodists. I just um, wrote an obituary for a cousin whose mother joined a Methodist church in um, Northampton hello, um, when she moved there, but she joined in 1954. And one of the person reading the obituary made the mistake of adding United to the title of the church. And I had to explain to them later, I said, the Methodist church wasn't united at that time. There was a mm. Methodist Episcopal church North, a Methodist Episcopal church South, and the black congregations were segregated into the central jurisdiction and were uh, associated with the Methodist Episcopal Church North, and they were electing their own bishops. And one of the things that they discovered once the, they became united was all of a sudden, African Americans had less visibility and less power. So the, the, the stress lines that we um, that around race very much are tied to religion. The Baptist split over slavery, the Methodist split over slavery, the Presbyterians split over slavery, the Episcopalians did not split over slavery. And I had to read the book by the DeWolf family to figure out why they didn't split. And you look at the family connections in the American upper class, the old upper class, it makes sense why they didn't split, even though they, there were deep disagreements over the issue of slavery. So race and religion have very much been tied to one another. And the politics, the political dramas and uh, of the last uh, several decades 
starting with the election of President Obama, have revealed how salient those stress lines, those divisions still are, even though we wanted to tell ourselves they had gone away. Uh, Professor Levine, bringing you into the conversation, as someone who studied the history of Christianity, where do you see this moment in the broader context of the life of the church um, through its, its history? And certainly it seems like it's, as um, uh, Professor Jokes was pointing to, it's a moment of, of uh, fracturing, of, of great challenge and debate within the Christian community, as well as a time where there's this growing alignment with Christianity and nationalism, not just in the U.S., but really broadly around the world. Um, you had earlier asked the question about Martin Luther King and whether Christians are paying attention. Um, King's legacy is much broader than that. Um, I have heard King preach from uh, the Bema, the pulpit, in, in my Orthodox synagogue. Um, uh, King is part of our regular reading within Jewish context because mm. he has a lot to say, uh, particularly his appropriations and interpretations of what the church would call the Old Testament and what Jews would call the Tanakh. So I, I don't want to restrict his legacy um, ju just to Christians. That's and right. I want to bring up that Jews, not all Jews are white. Um, and in That's fact, in a true. number of cases, given this rise in Christian nationalism, Jews, white Jews are kind of white, but not quite. Um, <laughs> mm. So you kind of bring in Jews of color in the question of, you know, wh where do Jews fall? Even, even conversations about what are we doing on Sunday morning is a Christian question uh, because it presumes mm -hmm. a church context, whether one is in or without. So we've got all these different identities that we have. And what I'm seeing is increasing balkanization. Back, back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, I came before you were born, um, when I was in graduate school at Duke University, which is a Methodist school, they told us that United Methodist was actually an oxymoron. Um, mm. So, you know, are, are we united? What is holding us together? And, and what, are, what are the fracture lines? So part of its race, part of its class, uh, part of it is what we think we are by Americans and whether we're part of a broader community or whether we're going to put that stress on individuality. Um, and what's made things worse is um, we just listen to our own echo chambers. Mm. So we don't have the common culture that we somehow had before when there were only, you know, three television networks plus uh, plus public TV or when we actually read newspapers. Now we just read our own feeds or Google tells us what we should be reading. So we no longer have a sense of, gee, maybe we can have a conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. um, it's not Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking with each other. It's Supreme Court justices who can't meet in the same room because one of them refuses to wear a mask and the other one's immunocompromised. Right, right. So since our leaders are not modeling what it means to engage in any sort of civil discourse, and since we've la we're increasingly lacking the ability to have conversations with people with whom we disagree, um, we, the divisions are continuing and one, one worries, I worry about whether those fracture lines have become so severe that we will simply split. So, you know, you brought up the issue of um, the, the of, of uh, uh, Christian privilege, you could say, or sort of the centralization of, of, of Christianity and sort of the discourse for, you know, what about continuing this line with uh, looking at Jews in this moment in the U.S.? How do you interpret the rise of uh, anti-Semitism in this country, most recently evident in, in the hostage situation this past weekend at, at the synagogue in, in Texas, both yeah. personally and as a scholar? Um, I'm, I'm appalled that members of the FBI and even the White House are making comments like, well, this really isn't anti-Semitism, or maybe we mm. have to figure out whether it, if you take a synagogue hostage, 
you know, as opposed to any other place. Right. That means you're targeting Jews. And if you're targeting Jews, that's an act of anti-Semitism. So just name it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think we find um, both within uh, the general American understanding of anti-Semitism, much like the American understanding of racism, and I'm speaking in very, very broad terms here. We like dead people. Martin Luther King is fine. He's dead. He's a martyr. Mm. Um, I think that synagogue, oh, yes, if, if, if people had been killed, oh, yes, of course, it's anti-Semitism. Mm. Mm. Right. Um, so how do we recognize the problem? Why can't we simply name it and then address it? And um, another problem that I think we're seeing here with questions of anti-Semitism or racism or sexism or various forms of discrimination against LBGTQIA plus people um, is, is that we're all in it for our own thing. So get this thing about ideological purity. Um, can you be a Zionist and yet do anti-racism work? And I've been told by people, no, you can't. And that seems to me very odd. Um, can you be a Roman Catholic with particular concerns about ordination and women's roles and abortion um, and still be interested in advocacy for ending anti-Semitism? Mm-hmm. And people said, no, you can't because it's ideological purity. And I wonder how we cross those lines to say on certain things like Zionism or mm-hmm. abortion, depending upon how we define these terms. We may disagree, but in other cases, we absolutely have to work together, like on voting rights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so on this on this point, then uh, about um, uh, finding those those points of of collaboration and 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 ad- mutual advocacy and so forth. So, writing about the the standoff at the Congregation Beth Israel uh, Synagogue in Coleysville, Texas, Yonat Shimron. Uh, of the Religion News Service highlighted the role that the leader of that synagogue had in the broader interfaith community and how Muslim and Christian clergy came out to support um, the hostages and, and, you know, obviously assist, I guess, with the FBI as well as, you know, with receiving them home. So how do you see this moment in sort of this, this, um, this context of broader Christian Jewish relations? There's nothing new there. Um, when a synagogue gets attacked, um, the neighbors come out. When a mosque gets attacked, the neighbors come out. Um, and these are all people of goodwill and, and all hail to them and let us celebrate them. Mm. But the structures are not going to change. So one of the areas in which I work is on how the New Testament is interpreted. In fact, how the Bible in general is interpreted. And what I find among numerous Christians of goodwill is anti-Semitism coming from the pulpit on Sunday morning because of difficult biblical passages in the New Testament about the Jews or about the Pharisees with no filters. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Christians can't hear their own privilege and they don't know how what they're saying sounds in the ears of others. Mm. And they don't realize how much they're inculcating negative stereotypes about people who are not Christian. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem in the Jewish community and in in the Muslim community and so on, um, because we simply have lost the ability if we ever had it, to hear with other people's ears or just to imagine that Sunday morning, what if there's a Jew in that congregation? Would you change what you say? And if you do, then why are you saying it if there's not in the first place? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, Professor Jilks, so what what about this this discussion of of the role of religion and in in sort of the public square what is the moral imperative really that's at the core of this current um debates 
at the highest you know center of power at this point certainly around uh voting rights in, in particular religion has turned into one of the problems in this area um one of let me back up because the issue of voting rights again it's not new it's more visible now mm. And back in the 1990s, I read an article in Mother Jones that talked about a, a lawyer in Mississippi named Margaret Carey, who was the best voting rights litigator. She had never lost a case. And I'm like, never lost a case? Ah, well, since I'm the director of African-American studies at Colby College and I have to do programming for the whole campus, I'll invite her to come speak and learn more about what she's doing. I, and, and I think for many of us who live to see some of the victories of the civil rights movement, we thought stuff was settled. As Judge A. Leon Higginbotham said to me one time at a conference, he said, we are running around, driving our blood pressure up, relitigating things we thought were settled law. Mm, mm -hmm. and, this, and, and this was in the 1990s when she was talking about all the cases that had to go to the courts because throughout the South, in the same way people fought school desegregation by creating religious schools, Baptist academies, to make segregation real for their children so that they could still go to whites only or schools with very few, with token black students. Um, once they wanted um, IRS 501c3, they had to let some black students in so that they couldn't, um, uh, all, all, so they could get the money that they needed. But, you know, what, what, so in the same way that they resisted school desegregation, they were still busy resisting voting rights. Mm. And so that section four, of the Voting Rights Act, where every time they changed something, they had to go into court, they had to justify it. They would move uh, lines, they would um, move in corporation lines. I mean, they're just, I, I had no idea as to how complex enforcing voting rights was and that there was a constant war going on around voting rights. And we just lost uh, one of the people I mentioned in my essay um, was the uh, law professor Lonnie Guineer at Harvard, um, who was a major litigator. Most people did not realize she was targeted because she was also a successful litigator. She had gone into Alabama and won a case where um, Jeff Sessions had tried to put three elderly people in jail for 250 years for helping other elderly people vote. Hmm. That's why she was targeted. And the person who had been constantly trying to keep the Voting Rights Act from being renewed was also the person whose organization came up with the stereotype of the quota queen, misrepresented all of her work. Uh, some political scientists at my, at my institution went online and read her material and said, that's not what she's saying. Clinton came out and said, you know, he had read it and it wasn't in his heart. He only read the introduction to the articles. There was no way he could have read the articles overnight because her arguments were so dense and complex. It was not readable in that way. Mm -hmm. So th there was a war already going on on voting rights. Um, and when you see the kinds of things that happened after President Obama 
was elected. People learned how to reframe their um, language about, it was about race, but they didn't want to say it was about race. I called home one day, my, my father who had said to me, I never thought I'd live long enough, you know, World War II veteran, um, never thought I'd live long enough to vote for a black man for president. I call home one day, by this time, daddy is 90 years old. And I call home and I say, hi, daddy, how are you doing today? You go, oh. And when your 90 year old father goes, uh -huh, um, you like, oh my God, do I have to get in the car and get down to Massachusetts and see what's going on? Daddy, what's wrong? He said, have you heard of these tea party folks? And I said, yes, daddy. He said, I went to the post office and they had Obama fixed up to look like Hitler. And then he, I had to hold the phone out here. Don't they know who Hitler was? How he killed all those people? Well, Hitler didn't do it, but his commanders and his generals did it. And they never talk about what Hitler did to the Senegalese. He said, I got out my car. My father was downtown Middleborough, Massachusetts, getting ready to do battle with um, Tea Party folks. And the police had to convince my 90-year-old father that they had a free speech right. And as long as they didn't set foot on federal property, there was nothing they could do. Mm. And that, but he, he, he held the phone. Don't think, I mean, daddy. I feel like I've, I've had living. conversations with my own father that way as well, where you just have to yeah. hold the, hold the phone. Just... <laughs> but they had, they had um, stations out with all kinds of racist depictions of yeah. Obama. So when the 2016 election was happening, my, one of my colleagues said to me, what do you think of all of this? And I said, I have the first line of my op-ed already if Mrs. Clinton wins. And he looked at me, he said, if Mrs. Clinton wins? I said, yes, if Mrs. Clinton wins. I said, they have a lot of money. All they have to do is figure out what counties in what states they need to win super big in order to get the electoral vote. They don't need the popular vote. And I was thinking of all the tiny publics on the basis of race and attitude that could be mobilized and you could go through the um, um, Mrs. Mrs. Clinton's opponent's speeches line by line and see what groups, what tiny public, to borrow one sociologist's term, he was mobilizing. So it was a multiplicity of tiny publics around a multiplicity of issues that they were able to mobilize in order to win that White House. But underneath it all was race. It was there. And nobody wanted to say so because we had the civil rights movement and we've moved on and we are now doing better. No, we're not doing better. No, we're not doing better. And our religious groups have not done better. So in thinking of, of the future and in thinking of, of I think, the 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 counterpoint to that these you know groups coalitions of groups coming together thinking of where we have to go um to strengthen relationships between religious communities and and the diversity of these different communities as they as they continue to subdivide and 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 um and so forth um i'm curious uh professor levine how how do you see the role of your program at at hartford in helping to contribute to building dialogue, building interreligious cooperation, particularly amongst young leaders? 
Well, young leaders is part of the problem. So along with questions of, of people being somehow stripped of their voting rights or uh, taken out of majorities by gerrymandering, I live in Tennessee, so I understand how that works. Um, I, I'm seeing youth who were so disaffected that they're not going to go to the polls at all. Mm. Um, and if you have youth in minoritized communities who aren't going to go to the polls, then you're just going to recapitulate the problems that are already there. Um, so how do you get people invested in being part of a, a national movement? That's that's already a problem. Um, I had until this past August been teaching at Vanderbilt University in the Divinity School, as well as the college in the Department of Jewish Studies. Um, and Vanderbilt does stuff that's really, really good. On race relations, we're terrific. Um, on gender, sexuality, and religion, we're terrific. Uh, but the investment is not in interreligious conversation. Um, and the Association of Theological Schools, which is the major accrediting organization for divinity schools and seminaries in the United States, is not invested in interreligious conversation. I've been writing to them since 2008 to get them to put that in a best practices model, and they refuse. Hartford is invested in Jewish, Christian, Muslim conversation. And in order to do that, you need Jews, Christians, and Muslims, at least on Zoom together, ideally in the same setting. Right. And you need them to be able to know a little bit about each other, uh, because if we don't know anything about our neighbors, we're simply going to um, impose on them our own projections mm. or our own ignorance. And if we don't know our neighbors, we're not in a really good position. Uh, to be able to to form to form strategic allies, um, and if we don't know our neighbors, we're not in a position to be able to disagree with them, which is part of what religious conversation is. So that we say um, Jews and Christians over here saying, you know what, the Trinity is not really working for us, uh, but we can still have take, a conversation. Take it from a, a Jew that teaches New Testament. <laughs> right. um, but but you can still have a conversation that says, well, now I see where you get it. Right. And I can see the logic in it and I can see the beauty there. It just doesn't work for me personally. Mm -hmm. And that's that sense of knowing the neighbor rather than thinking that the neighbor's views are to use the Yiddish term fakakt, um, or just it's ridiculous. Yes. Where um, do we have that conversation? And it's not in the public school system and it's not in parochial schools. So where's it going to happen? Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, I've, I've known a number of people who have gone through um, Hartford Seminary and their and their interreligious programs there, um, uh, chaplaincy and everything like that. So I'm glad to um, to have uh, the folks at your school as as being part of that that solution, creating that solution. Um, Professor Jokes, I think coming back to our initial frame, just as we wrap up this segment of it, I'm I'm curious, um, who are you looking to as picking up the mantle of leaders? Uh, like MLK in this current generation, we've talked a lot about the problems. I'm I'm curious if you if you are are looking with with hope um, towards uh, towards any young leaders that are coming up. Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize that the kind of leader that we see in Dr. King is not there's a multiplicity of leaders and no longer will we have leaders who are deemed mainstream. When um, one of the nice things they did the other night was they ran the film Selma, which um, Ava du, um, DuVernay does a very good job of showing how the FBI and the um, president were selecting leaders uh, 
Mm. And that even though they were harassing Dr. King and did, did, did some terrible things to him, things so terrible that at Coretta Scott King's funeral, a former head of the FBI honestly said that when he got a letter, his office got a letter from Mrs. King, we were afraid to open it because we knew what we had done to them. Mm. Okay. So even with all of that, we, one of the things that the high visibility of Dr. King, and it was a strategic visibility. It was a strategic visibility. I, I won't go into it. That kind of high visibility masked the tremendous number of people who had to lead in very specific local places. Nowadays, with social media, people who are leading in very specific uh, local places can also be nationally visible. That's right. And uh, for instance, just before we got on the air, there was a young woman who had done something as part of a Black Lives Matter demonstration and made this little video about how using Monopoly game to talk about how wealth um, discrimination matters, all of a sudden now has a book and she was on national television this morning explaining how this process works. So there are so many learning points and so many people sharing those learning points. But the, one of the most important to me is Reverend William Barber and his movement that has picked up the mantle because Dr. King, when Dr. King died, he was talking about poor people. He was talking about the, the way in which poverty affected the entire nation. He was talking about the multiplicity of communities facing poverty. And it was an important conversation. And that conversation was blunted uh, when, he, when, he, when he was assassinated. The fact that poor people who are white do not identify their situation with poor people who are black, that racism operates in such a way as to continue to divide. And this was another piece of why I said those tiny publics were important because W.E.B. Du Bois in his book, Black Reconstruction in America has this wonderful chapter called the propaganda of history where he says, we talk about the South as if only two groups existed, hmm. slave owners and the people who were enslaved. We never talk about the majority of white people in the South hmm. who did not own slaves. And their descendants basically gave us that awful president. Notice I won't say the name. So my, my, my um, how do we say, my Hogwarts training kicks in on that one. <laughs> now, as we do in every episode in the second half of our program, it's time to turn the mics over to my dear guests for them to ask each other some questions of their own. On our show, we seek to model as Professor Levine was uh, was striving for before and, and encouraging us to strive for, uh, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning while at the same time not being afraid to get into some interfaith-ish. So with that, I will turn the lectern over to Professor Jokes and Professor Levine. I would love to ask my colleague what she would think of as an ideal course for a, uh, a, an ideal required course for seminary. When we go to seminary, we have to take Old Testament, we have to take New Testament, we have to take systematics. Um, I still have an incomplete in systematics. Um, we won't talk about that, but I got ordained anyway. Um, 
what what would be your ideal course for uh because i think religious ignorance is one of the biggest problems that, that in our society um I, I can remember how vehement and passionate some some of the um, doctrinal arguments would happen in my house growing up. Uh, the fact that we live in a society where people would brag about how abusive they could be to Jehovah's Witnesses. Like, you know, we may disagree with them, but wait a minute. Why are you bragging about how abusive you can be to to people? Um, I My parents moved to a neighborhood full of um, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they used our house as a way of breaking in new members, getting turned away nicely and politely by somebody who knew their Bible, my mother, you know, because she, she wasn't abusive. <laughs> but you think of the role of religion by itself and the role of religious ignorance in fostering that. So Professor Levine, AJ, what would be your ideal course as a required course for every seminarian trying to get an MDiv? Oh, would, would that I had the power to do that. Hey, we, we, we can say it. And, you know, we have not because yeah. we have not. <laughs> I, I've asked. Um, it, I would like to see a course for candidates to be ordained in the Christian tradition across the board. Uh, to have a course on how you preach without demonizing others. Yes. Um, and because I don't think they realize um, how difficult some of their words are and how the Bible, if left uninterpreted, um, it's that old model like guns don't kill people, pe people kill people. Well, mm -hmm. if the Bible is used in a, in a thoughtless way, mm -hmm. it is going to do harm. Yes. So how do you talk about the Jews in the New Testament? Mm -hmm. How do you talk about poor people when you've got Paul saying, if, if you don't work, you don't eat? Um, and you can do that by recognizing that Paul thinks the end of the world is about to come. He's not talking about social policy. Um, uh, how do you talk about women um, when you've got texts that seem that, that marginalize women? You know, I permit no women to teach or have authority. Uh, mm -hmm. She's supposed to be subordinate. Um, how do you talk about uh, uh, people who aren't heterosexual? Um, how do you talk about youth? Um, it, it, how do you talk about people outside the Christian tradition, what we would call today pagans or Gentiles? Mm -hmm. um, and until people realize the dangers of this text, and let's take it beyond that. Um, when you have all these stories about curing the blind and blindness being used as a spiritual metaphor for ignorance or, infidel or, or lack of fidelity, then what do you say to people who are sight impaired? Thank you, um, like my grandmother like your grandmother, like me for that matter, right? terrible, I say. Um, so how do we preach in a way that's responsible, that mm -hmm. honors the text, that honors the history of the text rather than colonizing it to make it say whatever we want? Yes. Um, so that we wind up having responsible preaching, which is at the same time inspirational. And for all those Christians out there who kind of get bored on Sunday morning, which may be the most boring hour of the week, how do you make it interesting? Yeah. How do you bring the people back in? So yeah, I wish everybody would have a course like that. Yeah, that one, one of the reasons I, uh, when I wanted us to be able to talk was because Dr. King, as you said, he used the Hebrew Bible. One of, um, I'm working on a project that looks at the, the Bible as um, the 
the cultural imagination, uh, African-Americans and, and their cultural imagination. It's a sociology of knowledge project called that blessed book, the Bible and the African-American cultural imagination. And one of the things that comes through in the African-American tradition is no division between what is called the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Um, that wall doesn't exist. And what I do is I identify some key texts that are highlighted in the oral tradition. What, you know, why did the ancestors flag these texts? How do the spirituals and the folklore point like you know, those signs that would point with a finger? I don't know what those signs are called, but anyway, that, that you know, and I'm asking the question, why did they pick that text? And there's this wonderful text in Luke 16 um, where you have the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus is laid at the gate and he's poor, he's so poor that you know, he would have, eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. And you have to explain that people were so rich they could use slices of bread to wipe the grease and gravy off their hands and then just toss it under the table for the dogs. You know, this, this, this kind of stuff, how do we contextualize that? But there is this wonderful spiritual, and I overuse the word wonderful all the time, I can't help myself. Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Oh, rock of my soul. The bosom of Abraham only shows up one time in the King James Bible. And it's in that story in Luke 16. And that's a big flag. But when you read the whole story, and there's other, there are several other spirituals that focus on that story. Well, you sit down and look at it when you get to the end of the story and you remind people, now Jesus is telling the story. This is Jesus speaking. Hello, Let, let's take seriously what Jesus is saying about the poor, okay? But when you get to the end of the story, Jesus says to the listeners, it won't do you a bit of good if somebody should return from the dead, if you hear not Moses, and the prophets. And, you know, it's like, wow, we've got to listen to this. Martin Luther King, the, it, it is said that the entire time during the Montgomery bus boycott, he carried Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited in his briefcase. It is a very influential book. And one of the points that Howard Thurman makes that colleagues have told me, um, Elizabeth Schussler, Fioranza, others, when they visit white churches and say that Jesus is a Jew, folks get upset. And what is Thurman reminding us? Jesus is a Jew. When I was interviewing women leaders in, um, in an urban community, one of the things they pointed out was they identified with Jesus because he was a Jew and they, you know, and, and like black people, they're oppressed. You know, that, that there was that, kinship. So the importance of recognizing and not in to use Martin Luther King's term in where do we go from here, chaos or community, engaging in acts of cultural erasure. When we talk about Jesus, we must acknowledge Jesus is a Jew. And uh, one, I, I mean, there's this one piece where John the Baptist is fussing at the Pharisees and he said, this standeth one among you. I'm like, 
Jesus must be a Pharisee. Let's talk about that. You get somebody to talk about that. In my workshops, we do these things. But, um, <laughs> you know, thank God for women's days in the black church. But the, the, view of, the views of the black church are not the majority views in American Christianity. And sometimes not even the, the majority views in black churches. So um, just a couple of points on that. So thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, if we have erasure, we're going to lose part of our history. Um, you had mentioned the movie Selma before. Yeah. Abraham Joshua Heschel's presence is erased in that movie. Yes, I, 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 I um, couldn't understand why they did that. Um, so how do we recover um, that that presence? So we turned him into an Orthodox um greek orthodox i think yeah um, but in any case um when we think about jesus as a jew absolutely um to to broaden out beyond the jews are oppressed to mm -hmm. say what does it mean to be a jew well to be a jew means to be embedded uh in the torah and the prophets yes it means to be commanded by law um you will always have the poor with you therefore extend your hand to the poor and needy and that's what that parable of the rich man and Lazarus is doing. Like, so you read Moses and you read the prophets and you know exactly what you're supposed to do. And you have to go beyond that to look at what second temple Jews like Jesus are saying, because he's not unique. Jesus did not invent social justice and no. Jesus did not invent women's rights and Jesus did not invent the pantsuit. Um, so, you know, uh, so rather than what happens in churches so often is Jesus becomes the one Jew who cares about health care or the one Jew who cares about elitism and exploitation, to recognize that he's speaking from within his own culture, which is why he would have gotten an airing in the first place, um, rather than to yank him out and make him somehow the first Christian. Yeah. I think that's it. Uh, just to jump back in here, one one point that I, I saw um, online, um, Professor Levine was a point that somebody had made about that, positioning him as somehow being um, exceptionally radical uh, apart from the tradition, um, I think it, as the person was saying, was sort of an act of anti-Semitism in and of itself, because it doesn't honor the fact that those, as you were saying, are embedded in that, that deep Jewish tradition. Um, and and Professor Jokes, I, I'm glad that you mentioned your your book about the Bible and African American cultural imagination. I, I'm I'm really excited to to when that book comes out to really dive into you know how the power of imagination has really been a tool for liberation and how we can collectively harness that that power to see beyond this present moment uh, to a brighter world ahead. It seems like that's, you know, a lot of, of, of what that energy is and certainly, you know, the songs that you were you were calling on just now, with, you know, are a part of that. Um, on, on the topic of, of plugging books, uh, Professor Levine, right before we, we go, I was really curious if, if you could touch on, on one point I'd wager that anyone who's writing books for kids has a hopeful view of the future. Uh, so can you tell us just briefly uh, a little bit about what you've enjoyed about weaving in these weighty theological topics to your work at, um, from academia into a fun-sized package for kids? Um, my children's books are co-authored with Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, who's actually a children's book author. I like to write you know, heavy tomes with, with stuff in German in the footnotes. Um, <laughs> There are so many books that are targeted for Christian children, which are anti-Jewish, or they're boring, or they're both. Um, so what <laughs> Sandy and I, the rabbi and the Jewish New Testament professor, are doing is a number of these books look at Jesus' parables. Um, we haven't gotten to Luke 16 yet. We may. Um, uh, and, and we try to tell the kids, who, and these are written for three to seven-year-olds, 
kids have an ethical sense. Kids understand not fair and kids understand right or wrong. Um, so we have a book called uh, Who is My Neighbor, which is really about the parable of the Good Samaritan, except it's um, stick figures. Uh, Who Counts, um, which is about the parables in Luke chapter 15. Um, and what we want to tell kids is everybody counts. So as a sheep owner counts sheep, and as a woman counts coins, and as a dad forgot to count his older son, how do you make everybody feel counted? Mm. So what we're trying to do is use the Bible and Jesus stories in particular, although not only, we wrote a book about the first chapter of Genesis also um, called God's Big Problem. Um, it, what we're trying to do is say, hey, kids, the Bible is interesting and the Bible is ethical. Um, and at the end, we give notes to parents and caregivers saying, here are some questions you might ask your child as you are reading this book um, to get kids interested in the act of reading. That's not great. a bad thing to do. Great. So um, for folks who are interested, um, ways to find out about those books and, and purchase them at uh, with their hopefully local bookseller? <laughs> or if not, all you have to do is look me up on the internet. You can find books designed for um, children, books designed for Christian adult dead. The most recent is called Witness at the Cross. Um, books designed for crossover readers like the Jewish Annotated New Testament and the Bible with and without Jesus. So multiple audiences, because not everybody has the same taste or the same interest. But if we can get people interested in reading the Bible critically, that's a good start right there. Great. And Professor Jokes, um, ways to find out about your writing? Well, I have my, my one little book, which is still in print, which is through Orbis Books. It's called If It Wasn't for the Women. Um, the title comes from the words of African-American women in challenging the sexism that they faced. Uh, one in a church meeting who said, if it wasn't for the women, you wouldn't have a church. Another mm. in a um, denominational bookstore who um, said, if it wasn't for the women, you wouldn't have a church. And I said, yes, okay, that, that, that says it. Um, so it's called, if it wasn't for the women through Orbis books, and it can be ordered directly through Orbis. So if you just go online and put jokes Plus, if it wasn't for the women, it will come up. You can, you know, it, it, it's orderable. And I, then I, uh, I've had a series of um, opinion essays with Religion News Service. They've been very welcoming to me, and yes. so, um, and that welcoming relationship began when I was trying to write an op-ed about the um, summer, of, the red summer of 1919. And of course, everybody wants to shop everything to that big newspaper, which I won't name. Um, and the editor had the nerve to say, well, we're not sure what happened in 1919. And I'm uh -oh. like, I don't think so. <laughs> and so I wrote to my a friend there at religion and said, I have this essay. And of course it was 2000 words. So I had to learn the art of the eight hundred or nine hundred word and we <laughs> academics don't think in eight hundred and nine hundred word units so well, religion, and, religion news service is a, is a wonderful resource yeah. certainly they they uh they help bring us together today so I'm, I'm grateful i'm grateful to them and so they decided i was teachable and they've been very helpful but i have articles in various kinds of books um and, and journals and great and I encourage everybody to 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 look both of my guests up and and, and to enjoy diving into all their writings and, and maybe sign up for a class or two if you're interested if you're up in Maine or up in Connecticut um, at Colby College and uh, Hartford. 
International University for Religion and Peace. I'm still getting used yes. to saying that mouthful. Thank you so much both for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. And so good to see you, Cheryl. And the same here, AJ. It was a blessing to have the opportunity to hear and see, hear your words and see you and, and hear your books lifted up. Yes. yes. As we say, amen. Yes. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guest, Professor Cheryl Townsend-Jilks, who teaches African-American studies and sociology at Colby College, and Professor A.J. Levine, who teaches New Testament and Jewish studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. You can find their books online and look for Professor Jilks' op-ed on the Religion News Service. The link will also be in the show notes. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovemeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. If you're listening to this over at TacomaRadio.org, you can find our archives of past shows or check us out on your podcast aggregator of choice. We are podcast aggregator agnostic. You can find us wherever you like. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish and keep writing us with the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week. Streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. <laughs>